0: Well, as we uh, continue our uh, study of the uh, book of Philippians, uh, we come today uh, to Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 4 through 11, in a message I have entitled The Glorious Exchange. The Glorious Exchange. And it will take me two weeks uh, to work uh, through this message and the uh, sermon notes that you do have. These verses contain the greatest and most dramatic salvation testimony in the entire New Testament. And of course, I'm referring to the personal testimony of the Apostle Paul, who went from being a persecutor of the Christian faith to a devout follower of Jesus Christ. At the time of Christ's death, burial and resurrection, and the birth of the church in Jerusalem, Paul was a young Pharisee who went by the name of Saul. Uh, The Pharisees at that time numbered around 6,000 men, and they viewed themselves as the guardian of the Old Testament scriptures, uh, the guardian of the Jewish faith and although they were small in number, uh, they exerted the greatest influence among the Jewish people. And with great religious zeal, uh, they would attack any heretical belief or sect that they believed believe threatened uh, true faith in God. Which, of course, made the new Christian sect... Their greatest enemy and target. Uh, the young Paul uh, became the designated, appointed, uh, leading henchman uh, for the Pharisees in eliminating Christianity. Uh, Paul was complicit in the execution and uh, by stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Uh, we're told that the men who stoned Stephen, uh, laid their garments, laid their robes at Paul's feet. And we're also told that Paul gave hearty agreement. That's a quote from the Bible in uh, Acts 8. He gave hearty agreement with putting him to death. In Acts 8 verse 3 we read, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he put them in prison. Uh, Paul's ruthless attack on the church in Jerusalem was so effective that we're told in Acts 8 that the believers were forced literally to flee. To, and they scattered all over the Roman Empire, which actually uh, God turned for good as that became the impetus for the spread of the gospel in the known world uh, at that time. Uh, His persecution of believers was so violent uh, that after his conversion, uh, we read this in Acts 9, 21, and all those hearing him talking about Paul and and the fact that he had been converted, uh, they were amazed and they were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed all those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest. Now these next statements were made by Paul after his conversion as he looked back in shame, in regret at his former life. Acts 22 verse 4, he says, "...and I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women in prison." Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furious and enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9, Paul said, For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former manner of life in, Dru- in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. 1 Timothy 1.13, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I want you to take your Bibles right now and turn with that background, to Acts 9. And I want us simply to read the historical account of Paul's conversion to Christ on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 9, I'll read verses 1 through 9. Now Saul, of course he went by the name Saul in his early years, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, And he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, to Christianity, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, Paul, said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, speechless hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was uh, there three days uh, without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And then most of you know the story how he was met by uh, the disciple of Christ, Ananias, who uh, took him under his wings and began to minister. And uh, that embarked Paul uh, on his uh, uh, relationship with, uh, with with Christ. Now, that's the historical account of Paul's conversion. But now turn, and this is where it gets exciting, to Philippians 3, uh, verses 4 through 11, where Paul himself reveals the transformation that took place internally in his thinking and in his heart when Christ broke through the spiritual darkness of a very proud and self-righteous Pharisee. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. Paul says, Although I my, myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I, far more, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless, but here's his conversion, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's opening his heart to reveal to us what happened When Christ's light penetrated his heart on that road to Damascus. And he said, whatever things were gained to me, verse 7, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Look at the introduction in your sermon notes. Look at that introduction in your sermon notes. In these verses, Paul shares his salvation testimony to reinforce the point he made in verse 3. And this is the connection to what preceded. And what did he say in verse 3? That the true circumcision are those who worship in the Spirit, boast in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. And let's pause right there for a moment. Let's just Quickly review. Remember, in the early verses in uh, chapter 3, he's dealing with the Judaizers. You remember who the Judaizers were? The Judaizers uh, were Jews who had uh, believed in Christ. They truly believed Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that He died, was buried for our sins, that He rose again. They believed all of that. But they said to be saved, in addition to that, A Gentile had to become a Jew. A Gentile had to be circumcised to be saved. A Gentile had to keep the law of Moses to be saved. So it wasn't faith alone. They tried to add works to salvation. And these folks became, as I've mentioned the last two weeks, the greatest enemy of the Apostle Paul. Everywhere Paul went, founding churches. After Paul left, here they would come right behind him. And then they would try to deceive these individuals and, and to take them away from the simplicity of devotion in Christ, to believe that they had to be circumcised, that they had to enter the, the Jewish faith, they had to keep the, the law of Moses. And so he's addressing that in these, in the, and, and he mentions hey, these folks, they're false, they're the false circumcision. He says, we're the true. And he says, here's a true believer. Remember we said this is probably, verse 3, probably the most concise, beautiful definition of a believer in the entire New Testament. A believer is his one who worships God, what? In the Spirit, with the, by the Spirit of God. In other words, in a true believer, the Spirit of God takes up residence in his heart. But as he takes up residence in his heart, he changes the heart of the believer. That believer's heart now hungers and thirsts after God, loves God, adores God. Everything is pointed upward toward God. Not only that, he glories, he boasts in Christ Jesus. And the other side, he, therefore, he places no confidence in the flesh. Now, pick up with your introduction again, that next sentence. Although Paul had reason to have confidence, In the flesh, as he mentions in verses 4 through 6, Paul saw salvation as a glorious exchange in which he took everything he counted as profit and counted it as loss in order to gain Christ. That's the glorious exchange. That's true, authentic salvation. Paul saw salvation as a glorious exchange when he took everything he counted as profit and counted it loss. In order to gain Christ. What did Paul write. In verses 7 and 8. Look at it again in your Bible. But whatever things were. Gained to me. Those things I have counted as. Loss for the sake of Christ. More than that. I count all things to be lost. In view of the surpassing value. Of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. Now you'll understand this better by looking at those key words that I've listed for you. Now the first three. Gain, loss, and count. All three of those words were literally taken from the business world in New Testament times. They are business terms. They are accounting terms. The word gain, kurdos, means the profit column in accounting. Uh, The word loss, zemiah in the Greek. Is the deficit column in accounting. The word count, hegemi, is the bottom line after all final calculations are done. And then surpassing value means something of incomparable worth. And then the word rubbish is a fascinating word in the Greek text. It, It can be translated garbage, waste, dung, manure, excrement. So what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus? And listen very carefully. What happened on that road to Damascus when he was confronted by Jesus? Now keep in mind, prior to his encounter with Christ, Paul understood all the claims of Jesus Christ. He knew what the gospel taught. That's why he was persecuting the church, because he thought it was all heresy. I mean, Paul would have studied his enemy well. He knew the teachings of Christianity inside and out. He knew all about Jesus Christ. But folks, it's very different when you're confronted by Christ, isn't it? And on the road to Damascus, Christ confronted Paul. Christ's light penetrated Paul's spiritual darkness. And when the lights came on, Paul realized that he had put all his confidence for salvation in religious pedigree and human achievement, which he lists in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. And it is a very impressive list. And we will look at it in a moment. Paul placed his religious pedigree, all of his religious achievements, he placed all of that, what? In the prophet column of his spiritual ledger. Believing he was saved because of his religious privilege, because of his religious achievements. Where had Paul placed Jesus Christ? He had placed Jesus on the lost side, on the liability side of the ledger. He saw Jesus... As a false messiah who had absolutely no value. Matter of fact, Paul saw Jesus as rubbish, as garbage, as waste. Human excrement that needed to be disposed of. And he was more than proud to do it. But then he encounters Christ and Paul's value system radically changes. Amen? Radically changes. What does Paul do? And this is exactly what he's saying in Philippians 3. This is what happened on the road to Damascus. Paul removed everything he had put on the prophet side. Everything he had once valued. Everything he had placed his confidence in for salvation. He removed it from the prophet side and he put it over here on the liability side. Then Paul took Jesus, who had been on the liability side, who Paul had seen nothing more than waste to be disposed of, and he placed his Christ on the prophet side. As his one treasure of incomparable worth, because he finally came to realize to possess Christ is to possess eternal salvation. Now, look at the key principle in your sermon notes. Here it is Salvation is an exchange of all the sinner is for all that Christ is. That's the essence of salvation, it is an exchange of all the sinner is. For all that Christ is. Look at the next verses in your notes. It just reinforces. Jesus said in Matthew 16 verses 24 and 25. For whoever wishes to save his life shall what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. For what shall it a man be profited? If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Look at Matthew 13 verse 44. The kingdom of heaven. And by the way, that's almost a synonymous phrase for salvation. So you could actually say salvation there. Salvation is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then the next verse. Again, the kingdom of heaven. Or again, salvation is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had and bought it. The simple point is this. Salvation. Is nothing more, it's nothing less than seeing the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. Seeing His incomparable worth, then giving up everything else to possess Him. That is the glorious exchange that takes place in salvation. Look at the key truth in your notes. The key truth. All efforts to earn salvation through doing good works, are nothing more than excrement in God's eyes. A sinner must exchange it all for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And the righteousness God imparts to the sinner through faith in Christ, and I might add, through faith in Christ alone. No plus sign after that. Like the Judaizers were trying to do. Now folks, hear me closely. Paul's testimony helps us to understand the nature of true repentance and true faith. Repentance literally means a change in thinking. It's what the word literally means, a change in thinking. And the Bible says, as a man thinks, what? So is he. So Repentance is a change in the way you think, and very, very specifically, in the way that you calculate value. In true repentance, a person sees the infinite value of Jesus Christ, that all other things, as Paul said, are rubbish in comparison to him. He then turns away from everything else to apprehend the treasure of Christ. That one pearl of incomparable worth. That is true repentance. That's why when there's that change of thinking, when your value system, that's why repentance is always associated with what? A turn in direction the way that you're going. You turn away from the world. You turn away from self. Why? Because you see that that's all rubbish now. Your eyes are open like Paul's eyes. And, and now you see the infinite value and worth of Jesus Christ. And then faith is the means that we possess the treasure. Faith is simply the hands of what? Of a beggar reaching out to accept what? The gift of the king. To receive that treasure of Christ. Now, look in your notes. And we'll run through this briefly. Look at the religious life. Paul once counted, or that the religious life, Paul counted a loss to gain a relationship with Christ. And this is verses 4 through 7. And these are just, just direct quotes from the Scripture. Notice, he mentions seven different things that he was putting his trust in for salvation. Number one, he says, I was circumcised the eighth day. In other words, Paul was circumcised, which initiated him into God's covenant people. So salvation is not by religious what? Ritual. Now we don't have circumcision today, but I want to tell you, observing the Lord's Supper is not going to save you. Baptism is not going to save you. Coming to church is not going to save you. Going to Sunday school is not going to save you. Religious ritual saves no one. But at one time, Paul was trusting in that. And then he says of the nation of Israel. Paul was of Israeli descent. Through and through. And he was proud of his unblemished pedigree. And so here we see salvation is not by birthright. You're not born a Christian. You know, many of y'all know uh, Edward and Christy Graham, who's uh, very active in, in the church. And Edward is the father of Franklin Graham. His grandfather is Billy Graham. Well, that's some religious pedigree. That's some birthright. But the fact that he's the grandson of Billy Graham, the fact that he's the son of Franklin Graham means nothing in the eyes of God in terms of bringing him into salvation. So no one is born into the faith. And then notice it says of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, When the promised land was divided among the twelve tribes, the holy city of Jerusalem was included in Benjamin's territory. This is the tribe which gave the first king to Israel. Uh, This is the tribe that remained true to the Davidic covenant when the other tribes broke away. They helped Jude and Levi restore the temple. In other words, this was a very special tribe, a, a very esteemed tribe. So salvation is not by status. It's not by religious status. It's not by social status. And then he says a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now unlike many Jews during New Testament times, Paul remained firmly committed to the language, to orthodox traditions, and to the customs of his ancestors. He was educated in Jerusalem under the famous Gamaliel, becoming an expert in the Hebrew scriptures. So salvation is not by religious traditions. Look at the fifth thing. It says, as to the law, what? A Pharisee. The Pharisees were the most elite, as we mentioned, influential and respected group of Jewish religious leaders. Their one passion was to know, interpret, guard, and obey the laws of God. So salvation is not by religious devotion. Just because you're devoted to something doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to save you. Look at number six. as to zeal, persecutor of the church. Paul was not even satisfied with being an ordinary Pharisee. He was a zealous Pharisee and, a, and the conscientious and relentless persecutor of all heretics and heretical sects. So salvation is not by religious sincerity. See, there are so many people today that think what? There are many roads to heaven. And as long as you're sincere... And as long as you're devoted, you know, you're going to get in. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. And what? No one comes to the Father but through me. There's the exclusivity of Christ. Salvation is through Christ and through Christ alone. And then look at the seventh thing. As to touching righteousness, which is in the law found blameless. And this doesn't mean that he had sinless perfection. The Jews didn't believe that. I mean, he, he knew that he had a sinful heart, but he's saying externally, in terms of the outward ceremonies and practices, he was blameless. So far as the observance of all the formal rules, precepts, and practices of the law were concerned, Paul measured up to the last requirement. From all outward appearances, he was the model Jew and picture of righteousness, So salvation is not by religious works. Now, take that and two observations. Number one, man's best efforts to gain God's favor grades out to a big, fat zero. That's what we get from this. I mean, if anyone could have been saved by works, it was the Apostle Paul. I mean, that's exactly what he's saying. Again, look at verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh. Again, he's, he's dealing with these Judaizers. He says, they're, they're telling you that it's through the ritual, circumstance, and keeping the law, and, and works added to your faith. Well, he says, hey, if there's anyone that should have confidence in the flesh, it should be me. And he says, if, if anyone else has in mind to put confidence in, I far more. So, I mean, Paul exceeded everybody in terms of works, in terms of performance, in terms of achievement, but when, when you when Paul got measured by Jesus, it came out to be a big fat zero. He was a sinner just like all of us, who had fallen short of the glory of God. And then notice the second observation. This is very important to see. Paul was the chief of sinners, not because of wicked works, but because he believed he could earn God's salvation through religious works. I'll say that again. Paul was the chief of sinners. Not because of wicked works. Not because of immorality. Not because of lying, thieving. No, but because he believed he could earn God's salvation through religious works. And as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, you need to understand Satan is at his best not outside the church, but inside the church. He's at his best deceiving people to help to make them think that through their religious pedigree through their religious ritual and traditions and through their religious achievements they can earn their way into heaven they put their confidence like Paul once put his confidence in those things and then we'll end here look at the glorious exchange the glorious exchange all the things on the prophet side of Paul's spiritual ledger, all the things he treasured and wrongly put his confidence in to secure eternal life, he placed on the deficit side of his spiritual ledger. He then made a single entry on the prophet side, Christ alone. Verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So as we conclude, let me ask each and every one of you the most important question. Have you made the glorious exchange? Now listen to me. Have you made the glorious exchange? I didn't ask you if you prayed a prayer at some time in the past. I didn't ask you if you made a profession of faith. I didn't ask you if you've walked down the aisle. I didn't ask you if you were baptized. I didn't ask you if you were involved in a Bible study or in a Sunday school class or you tithe, or whatever it might be. I ask you, have you made the glorious exchange? Open your Bible, and I will stop with this. Look at Philippians 3, one more time, verses 7 and 8. And I'm going to read these two verses again. And here's the question. When I read this, am I describing you? Can you honestly say you have made the glorious exchange and this expresses what is the very depth of your heart? This expresses the very essence of what has taken place internally with you. That you've had that radical change of thinking. That radical change in your value system which turned you from everything else to the incomparable worth of Jesus. And that you did reach out with the hands of beggar To receive that treasure. So is this you? But whatever things were gained. To me. Those things I have counted. As lost for the sake of Christ. More than that I count. All things. To be lost. In view. Of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Bow with me in prayer. Just want to give you a few moments just to ask God to evaluate your heart. You know, these Messages over the last few weeks, uh, just because of the text that we're looking at, it, it demands one to test his faith, to examine your faith, to examine your life, to see if you've experienced genuine faith, if you've experienced genuine rep- if you've experienced genuine salvation. You've known that glorious exchange. And so look to God. Again, you know, as I shared with you, I believe, uh, last week. God loves you. He sent His Son on the cross to die for you. If you have been deceived in a false assurance, He wants to bring you out of that because of His love for you. He wants to bring you to this glorious exchange. Don't resist that. Don't let your pride prevent you from humbling yourself if you have been deceived. And exchanging your life for His life. So let me just be quiet for a moment. Just, you ask, God, examine my heart. God, if I made the glorious exchange... Amen. As we go into our time of invitation, possibly uh, you had a Damascus Road encounter this morning. The lights came on, and you realized you were valuing and placing your confidence in other things and not Christ alone. And I trust you made that glorious exchange. And if you have not yet, I trust uh, you still will um, because of God's great love for you and His desire for your life to honor Him. So I'll I'll be here at the front uh, to greet anyone that has a decision of uh, any nature. uh, If you would like to say, yes, I've made that glorious exchange and I praise God that He brought me to that place, possibly brought me out of my deception, my false assurance to true salvation. Uh, Possibly you've been visiting, looking for a church home. God's going to lead you during this time to unite with our church, and we would invite you to come. So you stand and uh, just be responsive to what God uh, speaks to your heart.